Oh yeah, we'll, oh yeah, we should probably dismiss them. We'll do that after we pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together and uh, to worship together. Lord, we ask that you would uh, guide our time of teaching, whether it's up here or downstairs um, with the kids, and that we might encounter you in the written word, that we might uh, know the God, the creator, the, the savior, the master, the father, um, so many different appellations applied to you. Um, but that we might know you better, and in knowing you better, we might know ourselves and know each other uh, more thoroughly and more scripturally. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I will go ahead and dismiss the kids downstairs. While they're going, um, we'll invite you to, to uh, open to the book of John. John chapter 1. Uh, we've been studying the book of John. I've been looking at... Um, what God has, uh, how John phrases what is going on uh, with Jesus, how he tells the story of Jesus. And um, I know that for some of you, you're sitting there going, this is week five, and we have progressed exactly 18 verses. Um, so at this pace, we will finish about the time um, that uh, about the time that we're all ready to retire. I, I promise we will be moving quicker. Um, but that first that first 18 verses is just so charged. There's so much going on in that in the, those verses. Um, it's so it's such a, an intricate design, and, and we could probably spend another a couple of months just on those verses. But we're going to pick up in verse 19, um, and we're going to pick up with. Uh, John the Baptist. Now, I, I, I got to clarify a couple things. First of all, um, this is not the founder of the Baptist denomination. All right, um, he's John the Baptizer or John the one who baptizes. Um, and calling him John the Baptist actually predates the the denominational name uh, Baptist. Um, but uh, that's John the Baptist. He's the subject of the conversation. He also is not the John who wrote the Gospel of John. There are two different Johns. Um, John the Baptist was Jesus's cousin. Uh, John, John, the author of the the gospel, um, we, we he's one of Jesus's disciples. So um, you got to keep the Johns straight. Um, just like today, John is one of the most common name was one of the most common names in the ancient world, um, and so uh, it was very common, uh, very very common name. And uh, and his parents were very original. Uh, John is the most common name in the in the in the ancient in the first century Palestine. The second most common is James, which is his brother, and the third most common is Joshua or Jesus. So um, they're they're pretty common. Uh, a few years ago, there was a somebody found an ossuary, which is a um, ossuary is a stone box. They, it, ossuary means in Latin it actually means bone box. And what you did was you bury, to bury people when people died. Um, you put their bodies in a cave, you let the, the flesh all decay, and then you took the bones, you collect them up, put them in a box, and put a person's name on it, um, and then filed it away. I wish I was making up. That's actually how it worked. Um, and, uh, and there's an ossuary that was found a few years ago, and it had on the front of it uh, jo- uh, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, the son of Joseph. And everybody went, oh my goodness, you know, and it was empty. They were like, oh, an empty ossuary. This is obviously was made for Jesus. And every archaeologist, except for the guy that discovered it and published it and tried to write a book on it, every other archaeologist went, no, that's not how this works. Um, But they're very, very common names. And so uh, it's a little bit confusing. But this is John the Baptist. And so in verse uh, chapter 1 and verse 19, we're going to pick up on his his testimony. I mentioned in week 1 that John very much is making a legal case for Jesus being the Son of God, and this is, he's calling his first witness. 
Um, and so John chapter 1 and verse 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. And they said to them, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, when they had been sent, now, uh, and this in your Bibles probably has a parentheses here, and it says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Um, the Greek is actually those who had been sent from the Pharisees. Um, and so this is probably a second group of people. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize because it's in my name. No, that's not what he said. Uh, he said, I, I I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany, across Jordan, where John was baptizing. Now, we're going to go further. We're going to get into Jesus' appearance, but I just want to start here. So John is being examined by opposing counsel. Um, and that's the way that, that the author of the gospel is phrasing this. John is preaching. He doesn't give us any of the context of who John the Baptist is. Now you can get that. You can go to Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, and you can read the context of John. And, and Luke actually has a much more elaborate explanation. He has much more about what John was preaching. He talks about what John was dressed like. Um, there's a, there, he has all the, these details, because Luke was a doctor, um, working for the Apostle Paul, so he's very detail-oriented. He wants you to know all these details. Uh, but John, he just assumes, and mentioned in the first week, that John the Baptist was a relatively well-known character um, in this world. People knew who he was. He had, he had fought against Herod the Great, and Herod, Great, Herod the Great was one of the richest men in the world. This is, this is almost like if somebody accused someone like Elon Musk or, or uh, um, somebody else famous and rich. I don't pay any attention anymore. Um, so somebody famous and rich, somebody was well-known for opposing them, that person would have a reputation. So John is relatively well known in their world. And, uh, and so he just says, this is the testament of John. And he gives us two, two uh, confrontations. The first is with the priests and the Levites. Now in the bulletin, I put a, I put a, a, a spreadsheet or a table um, of the sects of groups of Jews in Palestine. I'm not going to go through that. That's just a little bit of background for you to understand um, who were the priests uh, who were the Pharisees? Who were the Sadducees? Who were the Essenes? You know, there are all these different groups that get mentioned in the Bible, the Herodians and, um, and the Zealots. Um, and I, I put all of those in there. You can just have that for background. Um, you can file it away. You can throw it away. I don't care what you do. Just don't leave it on the floor. Um, but, uh, but whatever you do with that, um, but this gives you an idea. So this group, the, this group is sent from the priests and the Levites. So they're, they're sent from the party of uh, the Sadducees. Now, this is the ruling elite of Judaism in Jerusalem. And so they send a message to John, and they just say, um, Who are you? This is just their simple question. Who are you? Now, this is a fascinating question for a lot of reasons. One of the big reasons is that John's father was a priest. 
John's father in the book of Luke, we find out that John's father is a priest. Now he's a country priest. He's not a priest in Jerusalem. And he seems to have been uh, of the, the, a different persuasion than these priests. But um, John appears out of nowhere and they say, who are you? This is not a question of who are you? Like you go to a party and somebody starts talking to you randomly and you look at them and you go, um, should I know you? Right? Uh, uh, th- those kind of moments, anybody who m- runs into me outside of the context of church, it takes a minute for my brain to register what your face belongs to. Like, like what name does this face belong to? I know you. Um, not that kind of a who are you. What they're asking John is what is your role in our end time views and our and our our thinking about where Judaism is going. They're not asking who you are, who are you, give us your name. They know who he is personally. What they're asking him is, what role are you playing? In fact, what they're really saying is, are you the Messiah? That's really what they're asking him. Now later on, they'll be more articulate. They say, are you the Christ? They, they, are you the Messiah? Who are you? And he says, and the scripture says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Now, confession, in John's gospel, confession is when your words line up with God's truth. All right? So that's what he says. He says, I'm going to be honest. I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. The Greek word Christos, Hebrew word Meshach. Uh, I'm not the anointed one. I'm not the one that you think I am. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, that seems a random question, doesn't it? Um, But if you know the scriptures in the book of Malachi, uh, which is the last book in the Christian uh, Old Testament, uh, Malachi prophesies that Elijah, the prophet Elijah, will come uh, as the forerunner of the Messiah. So, okay, so you're not the Messiah. Are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Okay, are you that prophet or the prophet? Now, what does he mean by that? They're going back to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, it talks about a prophet like Moses would come. And then, so they're saying, are you, are you like Moses? You're a prophet like Moses. So they're, they're kind of kind of working their way down the hierarchy, right? They start with the Messiah. He says, no. Okay, so maybe he's Elijah. He says, no. Then, he, then they say, are you the prophet? Are you the one from Deuteronomy? He goes, no, I'm not that. And then, and this, and then they go, okay. So could you please tell us? Because we have people to answer to. Now, who do these people have to answer to? Who are the priests and the Levites who come to see John? Who are they answering to? They're answering to the high priest of Israel. They're answering to the Sanhedrin, the, the council, the ruling council of Judaism in Jerusalem, the ones who will ultimately bring accusations against Jesus, the ones who will ultimately pay Judas Iscariot to betray him. That's who sent them. So these priests and Levites come down to John and they say, who are you? They're trying to figure out who he is. Um, they're trying to place John in their understanding of the world. They, they want to get him, they want to find where he fits. They've already got a pre-supposed, uh, a, a preset layout of how things are going to go, and now they're just trying to fit him into their plan. It's always fascinating to me how, how often um, people uh, who often are very discerning and very intelligent and, 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 and have a lot going for them create a plan for a way that God should work in their lives and then just try to fit in whatever God does. 
right? And they're like, well, we've got the plan. We know what's going on. And that's exactly what's happening. And now I want you to catch what John does. How does he respond? In verse, verse, uh, as he, when he responds in verse, in verse 23, he said, I am the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now that's interesting because he's in the wilderness, um, he's on the other side of the Jordan, and so he's in the wilderness. Um, but his words are a callback, an actual quote from the book of Isaiah. And, uh, and John notes that. But one of the interesting things that happens in the Gospels, because writing is expensive in the ancient world, when you get a quote like this, this is not a proof text. All right, so what I mean by proof text is um, so often somebody will, will quote a Bible verse and they quote just enough of that Bible verse to prove their point, you know, um, and, they, and that's, that's called proof texting. Uh, and if you ever take a class on exegesis, which is the study of scripture, how to study scripture, they will tell you that is absolutely the worst thing you could possibly do because you can find a Bible verse to justify anything if you're not willing to deal with its context. I mean, I could find Bible verses to, uh, that give me right to um, marry more than one wife. I could find Bible verses that tell me that there is nothing that happens after you die, that you just you go to sleep and, and the world is over. Um, I could find Bible verses that say uh, anything I want them to say as long as I don't actually understand their context and the person I'm talking to also doesn't understand their context. Uh, and that's a lot of how cults are formed. You take a Bible verse, you rip it out of context, you tell people it's the word of God, people go, oh, the word of God must be true. And they never get beyond that. Um, And that's one of the reasons it's so important that we have a deep field of focus as we study scripture, that we understand where it fits. When John quotes Isaiah 4, all right, when he made, or 40, when he makes this quote, he wants us to go over there. And so I want you to go over there. All right, Isaiah chapter 40. Because I want you to hear what John is saying when he quotes this verse. He is not just saying, you want to know who I am? Uh, I'm the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Okay? We go, oh, oh, that, because that doesn't give an explanation. He's also telling us the identity of the person that he's coming before. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In the beginning was the word, remember? The beginning of chapter 1. And a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? This is Isaiah talking. Uh, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. John will make a big deal about the spirit of God, the breath, the wind of God in chapter three. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the city of Ju- cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and he is his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. John says, you want to know who I am? I'm the one that comes before the Lord your God. Make no mistake about it. Liberal scholars will tell you the gospel writers did not believe that Jesus was the God of the Old Testament and they are wrong. The gospel writers boldly and very creatively make it very plain who they believe Jesus is. They believe that Jesus, behold, the Lord your God is coming. Could John be any more direct about this? He says, I'm just the one who's coming before the Lord your God. And then, just to mess with their heads, then the Pharisees ask him a question. So you get the Sadducees, the priests and the Levites on one side. Who are you? John says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. All right. I'm just the one who's coming before the Lord. This has got to be one of the stupidest questions I have ever read. He just said, I'm the one coming before the Lord your God. And then they say, so why are you baptizing then? Why are you doing this? Completely missing the point. Completely missing his argument. Now you say, well, how would they have known what Isaiah 40, uh, how would they have known that that's what John was quoting? Now, I, I happen to personally believe that when John, we get this quote in John, John chapter 1 of him just quoting verse 3, I happen to believe that when they said that, John spoke out the whole psalm. It was very, very common uh, for somebody to be able, I mean, you memorize scripture in enormous quantities in these days because you didn't have a copy of the Bible in front of you. I think that he quotes this psalm. They know exactly, or this, this song from Isaiah. He knows exactly, they know exactly what he's saying. And they say, so why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Now, this is not Christian baptism. I want to make this very clear. This is a very different thing that's going on. Um, between the, the completion of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, between the, that period, there arose within Judaism, what's called Second Temple Judaism, this idea of ritual purification by immersion in water. Um, and and the, it, it, the idea was, uh, the idea was you, you were dirty and you had to wash yourself. Now, I get into where it comes from. It, it develops out of the view of the temple and, the, and, and how you cleanse sacrifices. And, and some groups used it a lot more than others. The, the Essenes, or the, 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 not the Essenes, the Qumran community, the, the people that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, they had uh, ceremonial baths located near everything. So they had a, like a mutual cafeteria, like everybody came and ate all together. They would a communal. They would all eat together, and there were baths 
next to the communal, communal lunch. When you went to, for breakfast, you got up in the morning, you did all your morning stuff, you went to have breakfast, you went in, you took off all your clothes, you ba- bathed yourself, you baptized yourself, then you put your clothes back on, you ate breakfast. Then when you were done, you went back to the bath, you took off your clothes, you baptized yourself again. You went out, you did everything that you had to do. Uh, depending on what you might do, you might have to baptize yourself a couple more times. Then come lunch. You come to lunch, take off all your clothes, baptize yourself, go into the community, you come back out, baptize yourself, walk about. And they, they continually, continually did this. And the, the ritual, the purpose of the ritual um, was this idea of separating themselves from the world, from everybody else, purifying themselves from all the residue of the world around them so that they could be, they could be clean, that they could receive what God had given them. And it, it actually took you years of training in the Qumran society, in sect, before you could actually, you were even allowed to participate in this baptism. You had to go through serial, uh, all, a series of, of levels of purification. You, had to, you, you started out, you couldn't eat any of the food. Then you could eat the food, but you couldn't drink the water. Then you could drink the water, but you couldn't drink the wine. Then you could wear the clothes, but you had to wash it. They, they, just tears and tears and tears of, of levels of, it was like a pyramid scheme. It's kind of like Scientology. You just worked your way through uh, this, whole, this whole list. It's actually not a bat. I may have, I'm going to file that away. Uh, anyway. Uh, so, so they're asking him, so why are you baptizing? Why are you immersing people? Because in their mind, that's what baptism is for. Baptism is for ritual purification so that you can, you're separated, you leave the world behind and you go join whatever movement you're doing. But he's saying, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. Uh, I'm just establishing the way for the Lord who is coming. And they say, so why are you baptizing? And in verse, uh, in verse 26, he says, John says, answered them. He says, I baptize with water. Now, what's interesting is that in this gospel, the gospel writer John leaves out a lot of what John the Baptist said in this moment. Because John the Baptist, in, in the other gospels, he actually says, I baptize but wa- but with water, but the one who comes to fire, he will baptize with fire. Now, he, that's, not, that's not in here, all right? I don't know why, but it's not. He says, I, I baptize with water, but... Among you stands one you do not know. Do you realize that Jesus is in this crowd? He's standing there. And they're missing him. He came unto his own. And his own received him not. They don't see him as any different. They don't see him as any you. He says, but there is one among you stands, among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. So who is he saying Jesus is? He's saying Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. No response. This will often happen in John's gospel. Someone will challenge what Jesus is doing, what God is doing, and Jesus or John or the disciples, they will answer, and then we never see their response. We never see what the the original challenger says. This is one of the most fascinating things about the way that John writes, I think. He invites us into this conversation, but then he leaves us to make our own conclusion. He leaves us to say, which side of this debate am I on? What, what side of this am I on? Am I, am I going to the messengers of God and, and, and asking them all these questions because I want my answers? 
Or am I going and I'm making an honest inquiry and when I get receive the inquiry back, when I receive the answer back, how do I respond? He does this all the time. He does it with Nicodemus. John, uh, John records a conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. They go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Jesus answers. John makes a bunch of commentary. We never get anything about Nicodemus. It's driven Bible students crazy for centuries. You're like, could Nicodemus again? Yeah, that's right. He doesn't even do that. He doesn't even respond. So Jesus leaves this open. Um, and uh, now, I, I, this, this, you can take this or you can leave it, but the word Bethany, it actually means the house of agony, the house of pain. All right? So um, I, I would quote a house of pain lyric if I knew any of their songs, but I don't. Um, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, there's two cities called Bethany. Um, in, in John's gospel, this is, this is one that's on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. So in what today would be the country of Jordan. Um, there's another one that's a suburb of Jerusalem, um, Bethany of Judea. And that's where Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, live. And we'll get to them um, later on in the book. The next day, John saw Jesus, verse 28 and 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man whose ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John twice says, I didn't know who I was preparing the way for. I didn't know who it was going to be. Now, isn't that fascinating? John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He's older than him by a couple of months. They must have known each other. They must have played together. Now, his parents were older, so we don't know what happened to John. He seems to have, um, it's possible that his parents, his parents died and he was taken um, into, a, into a care. Some people think that he went down and joined the Qumran society, sect. We don't know what happened with him. But he actually repeatedly says, I didn't know... Jesus was the one. I didn't know. I didn't know. That's, that to me fascinates me. I just have this picture of, you know how cousins, when they're close in age and one is just slightly older, I just have this image of John just bopping Jesus on the head when they're playing, you know, just kind of irritating him. And then once you, I mean, then imagine you're John as an adult suddenly realizing the guy you were bopping on the head is the Messiah and the Son of God. And you've got a lot of apologies to make. Um, he, says, he says, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. All I knew, John says, 
All I knew was that God had called me to be the forerunner. I was going to come and I was baptizing and the one was going to emerge. And so I came and I started declaring to people. Now again, John doesn't record, the gospel of John doesn't record John the Baptist's message. John the Baptist was preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now people read that read that, and they go, okay, what does that mean? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent means to turn. That's what the word means. It actually means to turn away from one thing and toward another thing. Um, and so the idea is he's saying to them, you need to turn so you can see the kingdom of God. In other words, he says, be baptized, turn your angle because the Lord is coming. Turn so that you see him. Be, switch your thinking so that you are aware when he arrives. It makes a lot more sense when you realize that John was preaching that and didn't know who he was preaching about. He knew the Lord was coming, but he didn't know who it was going to be. That's wild. And then his cousin shows up, and God confirms it. And John goes, all right, that's why we were looking this direction. That's why we were looking this direction. That's why we had to repent. We did not know where he was coming from. Now, John struggles with this. At one point, John actually sends a message to Jesus. He says, are you the one we're waiting for? Or should we you know, look for somebody else? John really still doesn't understand what God is going to do entirely with Jesus. He just knows that God said to him, the one that when you, when you are baptizing, there's going to be somebody that the Spirit is going to descend. You're going to see it like a dove. It's going to be a sign. He says the Spirit's going to descend on him, and it's going to remain. And this is the one who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And when John sees it, although he struggles, John says, okay, this is it. This is the one. Let's do this. My job is done. John opens the door and prepares the way for the arrival of God incarnate. Even though he does not fully understand what that arrival is going to look like. Now, what's going to happen? John opens the door. Jesus is going to turn the lights on. And he's going to let the, the breath of the wind in. He's going to change things. John, actually, would have been a very convenient Messiah for the Jews. Yeah, he's a lunatic. All right, but they've dealt with worse. Um, he's walking around in camel hair, eating honey and locusts and being weird. And yeah, he calls people serpents and stuff like that. But, you know, we've, we've dealt with worse. What's important is that John's not building an army. John's not building a religion. John's not trying to put together anything. John is just a teacher, and, and that's cool. He's telling people to be baptized. Well, you know, I mean, people are stinky, so baptize them all you want, John. The, the, that, that works for us. We, we, even the, in fact, the scriptures say even the Pharisees and Sadducees were going down to be baptized. You know, it's a nice, refreshing dip in the Jordan. It'd be fantastic. Um, there's all this stuff that's going on. But he's a manageable Messiah. He's different. He's challenging. He's a little bit on the fringe, but he's not dangerous. So when they ask him, are you the Messiah? I think the priests and Levites would have been perfectly happy to let him be a Messiah. 
Let him be a leader. Let him, let him clean things up. Now, when, we, when, when you read in Luke, particularly, you find out that John's message was things like, if you have two tunics and your friend has none, give your friend one of your tunics. If you're a taxpayer, if you're a tax agent, if you're a publican, a tax collector, collect fair taxes. If you're a soldier, only kill enemies. It was like, yeah, that's good. Those are, those are good points. You know, the Roman soldiers are like, wait a second. You know, and a little confusion going on. But for the most part, everyone's like, yeah, this is good. This is moral. This is wonderful. This is great. It's bringing balance. It's going to bring happiness. I mean, everybody to be content with the situation. John goes out of his way not to be anti-authority. He's anti-sin, but he's not anti-authority. So he would have been a comfortable, easy, manageable Messiah. But John is only opening the door. Someone far more dangerous is about to show up. And make no mistake about it, Jesus is dangerous. Jesus steps in and turns the lights on and the wind starts blowing and the comforts and the manageability and the, and the convenience of religion starts to fall away. I think that's one of the reasons that people are so terrified of letting Jesus be Jesus. I think it's one of the reasons that we reduce him to a cartoon in our family Bibles. Swedish guy in a bathrobe with a shiny dish behind his head, patting children on their heads. You know, always, you know that most of the midi- Renaissance portraits of Jesus are actually women with fake beards on them. He's so gentle and soft and kind and sweet. I, mean, I don't mean to tell you anything, but I mean, at one point, Jesus is one hand in flipping over oak tables, okay? So there's a little bit more to Jesus than just the sweet, gentle thing. Oh, and by the way, thousands of people could hear him speaking when he spoke without microphones. And that was not like a supernatural megaphone. It wasn't like he was like the Green Lantern making a megaphone out of his... He was able to actually speak loud enough that people could hear him. That was a little comic book reference. A lot of you didn't catch it because Ryan Reynolds was in a terrible movie called The Green Lantern. But we won't get into that. Um, but the, this Jesus is a formidable force of nature. Actually a force of supernature that John is just opening the door for. And nobody knows how to deal with it. In fact, the first question that gets asked of Jesus in the Gospel of John, without looking ahead, do you know what the first question that gets asked of Jesus is? So, uh, where are you staying tonight? (laughs) No one has any idea what to do with this guy. John, John has opened the door. He has aligned everybody to hear from Jesus. But Jesus is about to blow the doors off of everybody's expectations. Now, one of the things I always talk about when it comes to application of the the scriptures is when you read in the Gospels, there's an easy way to create an application for yourself in the Gospels. You are everybody except Jesus. Do not read the Gospels and go, well, Jesus did this. I should be like Jesus. Now, not that that's necessarily wrong, but the best thing that you can do is read the Gospels and go, okay, we're everybody else. Jesus is Jesus, and yeah, we want to emulate him, but we're everybody else. Put yourself in John's place. What is your job as the forerunner of Christ? 
as the forerunner of God in the lives and the world of the people in front of you, it is to open the door. It is to prepare the way. It is to align our eyes so people can see Jesus when he shows up. We, our job is to point people toward Jesus. Unfortunately, so much of religion's job is to distract people from Jesus. The religiosity of our world, the churchianity of our world, throw out some other made-up words if you want, all right? But the, the what? The isms of this world, right? The, the complicated doctrines of this world, they, all of those things, they, they so quickly take the name of Jesus and they slap it on something else, um, like, like, like brand name, Velve, brand name uh, you know, Velveeta cheese, slapping a name on whatever that goo actually is. Calling that a cheese is an apostasy, all right? Not that it isn't tasty, it's just not cheese. I hate it when I go to a restaurant, they're like, you want orange cheese or white cheese? And I look at them and go, there is no such thing as orange cheese. I'm sorry. Whatever that is, it's not cheese. Um, so, but, but we, everybody wants to slap all of these things. The reality is our job is to open the door and let Jesus in and see what he does. See, see the chaos that he wreaks on our system of thinking. Our human uh, self-centered way of viewing the world. See the way that Jesus turns the world open, uh, upside down. But our job is not to, work the, to turn the world upside down. Our job is to open the door and let Jesus do what Jesus does. I caught a lot of grief, by the way, during the riots of 2020 because I dared to say that the church's job is not racial reconciliation. I got some people really mad at me. I don't apologize for getting them mad at me because they were wrong. The church's job is to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ and transform lives by people coming to know Jesus. And you know what? If you genuinely, truly know Jesus, racism disappears. But if you walk around telling everybody, you have to be, you have, you, you as a, the gospel is about race. No, it's not. Because there's only one race and we're all losing it. It's about Jesus. We need to preach the gospel of Jesus. We need to open the door for people to meet Jesus. Let me put you a challenge. How often are your conversations with others about Jesus, are they about trying to convince someone, and I don't mean to be offensive, but to convince your friends, your family, whatever, that you're right about this and they're wrong about it? I've got the truth, you've got lies. Now, we don't frame it that way. We say, I've got truth, you've got lies. Let me convince you that my truth is right and your lies are wrong, and then we can get along and be happy. How many sermons do we see on Christian TV and in the pulpits of of America where preachers are just trying to convince people that, hey, you know, if you follow Jesus, life is going to be great, life is going to be grand, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and, and wise. You follow Jesus, get these 12 steps of Jesus, and man, your life is going to be working. Instead of just opening the door and letting people see Jesus as he is. Jesus does not need help to overthrow the tables of your life. All you have to do is spend a little bit of time with him. 
And you, you know, I mean, if you grew up not, you know, you grew up with the Jesus that appears on like movies, right? And then you read this and you see the Jesus that the gospel writers talk about. They're often not the same person. Uh, I mean, this is a Jesus, you read the scriptures, this is a Jesus who shows up to funerals and talk about wrecking people's plans, resurrects the people that are dead. This is a Jesus, this is a Jesus who shows up to a party. I, I mean, I still love that the first, the first miracle that John can think of when he's talking about Jesus is there was this party and we were all about to start drinking water. And then Jesus took the water, by the way, takes the water that you used for washing your hands. When you read John chapter 2, the, or the, the marriage of Supper of Cana, and, and Jesus turns water into wine, he actually tan, turns the hand-washing water into wine. There's not like drums of water for people like to drink. This was the water you reached your hands in and scrubbed your hands. Jesus, bring those over here. Bang! Party. <laughs> had to have been very confusing for the people that had just entered the party. Wash your hand. Wait a second. <laughs> Very confusing. Jesus, Jesus takes our expectations. He turns them upside down. He takes our questions. He turns them into better questions. You see, Jesus got all the answers. I don't know, man. He, he tends to give me more questions. I got a lot of questions. I wind up with a conversation in the scriptures, and I kind of go, well, that didn't help at all. And yet he steers me off, you know, there, there's something about Jesus. So what's our job as a church? Our job is to, to open the door for people to see Jesus. When we, when we gather as a church, that job doesn't stop. It isn't suddenly, okay, we're safe. We can all let it down, relax, be, you know... Lean back, let's worship and sing and pray and stuff. And then we'll go back out and the gospel should pervade what we do here. We should be opening doors. There should be non-Christians in our, con- in, our, in our worshiping, in our gathering, sitting there going, wow, I want to know more about this Jesus. Not, I did not know what that word meant. I did, what is, what is, yen? All right. There are Christians still asking that question. Like, I don't even know how to say this word. Um, uh, But we should be opening the door for people to journey together, to turn our attention toward Jesus. Jesus will turn the lights on. John opens the door. Jesus turns the lights on and lets the wind blow through. Now, I'm going to end with this. I'm a tiny bit over where I normally go. I just want to give you this little, little nugget as you read John. Maybe this will open your, your heart and eyes a little bit. Um, I, wouldn't die on a, I wouldn't die on this hill, but I have this theory um, that the first book that John writes is actually the book of the Revelation. And that the gospel of John is a response to him seeing Jesus the way he sees him in the book of Revelation. One of the things that John often sees with Jesus is this chaos of things just being blown around all over the place. You read the book of Revelation, people go, how do you understand the book of Revelation? I respond, poorly. Um, I'm just going to be honest. I don't understand a whole lot that goes on in that book. In fact, when I taught a series on it, I called it the unbelievably weird end of the Bible. 
Um, it's a strange book. But one of the things that happens throughout the book of the Revelation is that the wind is constantly blowing and John is constantly turning and seeing something that God is doing and turning and seeing what God is doing and turning and seeing what God is doing. It's almost like he's being blown around. In fact, at one point when Jesus is first revealed in the book of Revelation, he's in the midst of a, wind, a, a, a whirlwind and there are seven candlesticks flying around him. John brings that into his gospel. And whenever you read the word spirit in, gospel, in the gospel, the gospel of John, do not read it as, Holy Spirit, descend on us. Read it as wind. The presence of God sweeping through. The door is open and God blows in and transforms the situation. And you will read it very differently. Rather than reading as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? I used to listen to Gregorian chants when I was a kid, so I get that down. Alright? It's not that. It is it is the violent wind that blows through the house and overturns what we think is our order of life so that we can see the world better in the presence of Christ. And maybe you need a little wind. Maybe you need a disruption in your life. Maybe you need Jesus, the door has been closed and you need to get the door open and let the wind in. Behold, your God is coming. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Holy Spirit, we want to see you at work. We have formulas and plans and ideas, and but we want to see you at work. And it, it's it's fearful. It's 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 a fearful situation because there's a whole lot of people that use your name for things that are not in alignment with your word. But we can't reach, we can't teach, we, we can't lead, we can't point poor people toward Jesus without your power blowing through our lives. Help us to be like John, doing what you call us to do until Jesus shows up. And Jesus, we pray that you would invade the lives of those that we love who do not know you. That your extraordinary glory and power would be revealed. And that we might see ourselves as who we are and see you as who you are. And Holy Father, may all this May all that we do as a church and as individuals and as followers of Christ, may it all be in alignment with the new creation you are making in us and through us. May we always look to you, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.